Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about the great paradox of life. I hope you enjoy it. I want to talk about um, an issue that's been really very important in my life. I call it the great paradox of life. I want to start by sharing just a couple of thoughts. Um, a number of years ago, I met with a man, and we met together for almost six months straight. He was a guy that I would describe as being agnostic. I'm not sure how he would describe himself, but that's the way I described him. And after about six months of meetings, <clears throat> and he, he read voraciously, <clears throat> and we talked and discussed a number of issues, but after about six months, he concluded that Christianity was true and that he wanted to become a Christian. And he said one of the primary reasons, and this gentleman, by the way, was very well educated, highly intelligent, very thoughtful, but he said one of the primary reasons is that so much of what he read in the Bible and so much of what we talked about was counterintuitive. It went against the grain of natural human instinct and reason, he said. And therefore he concluded that the Bible and that the wisdom of the Bible could not have been produced by mere men. Kind of an interesting perspective. And yet the Apostle Paul, I think, addresses this very issue when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, "...the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? <clears throat> For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased, though, that the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews it's a stumbling block, and to Gentiles it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. <clears throat> you see, Paul is contrasting the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of men with the wisdom of God. And I share all this because I believe, guys, there truly is an art to living this life. And that life is governed by certain principles and that wisdom is seeking to live your life in harmony with these principles. And yet the problem is that so many of God's most important truths are foreign to the world because they're counterintuitive. And for this reason, as Paul points out, to some people, it's utter foolishness. And what they don't recognize, though, is that the wisdom of God, the truth of God, is often paradoxical. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with that word paradox, but Webster's defines a paradox as a tenet that is contrary to received opinion. 
It is a statement or principle that is seemingly contradictory and opposed to common sense, but may in fact be true. You see, a paradox is counterintuitive. It goes against what we naturally think, which leads me to what I want to present to you this morning. It's what I'm going to call life's great paradox. And it strikes right at the heart of us as men. And its ramifications are incredibly significant in our work life, in our relational life, and in our spiritual life. And this paradox comes from the words again of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he reveals a struggle that he has with his life. He calls it a thorn in the flesh that he's having to deal with. And he said, I asked for God to remove it. He said, but God's response to me was no. He says, instead, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And listen to this. He says, power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul summarizes the paradox when he says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's an interesting thought. Strength is found in weakness. I can assure you they don't teach that at business school. But what Paul is really trying to say as you read the, the, uh, the passages is that inner strength is found as we acknowledge our weaknesses, our deficiencies, our inadequacies, in essence, as we learn to humble ourselves. And this truly, guys, is something that does not come naturally to men. Ultimately, strength is found in humility or in the humble life. And this is what I want to explore with you this morning. And what I want to do is start by approaching this somewhat in reverse because I want to talk about the issue of pride. Because if this paradox is true, then we should logically conclude this, that pride and arrogance is what makes men weak. Now, when I speak of pride, I normally have men argue with me about the issue of pride. <clears throat> and you need to understand, I'm not talking about pride as in taking pride in what you do, taking pride in your work, striving for excellence. That's a completely different definition used in a completely different context. When I use the word pride, I'm talking about arrogance, a feeling of superiority. The Greeks call it hubris, too high a view of yourself. Now, and I'm sure as, as many of you sit here this morning, you probably are thinking, well, you know, that's, that's, that's something I don't have a real problem with. Now, Bob over there, he's quite arrogant. And Tom and Joe, but that's not something that I struggle with. Some of you may be uh, familiar with the words of C.S. Lewis as he addresses this in, in the book Mere Christianity. He says, there is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone the, but which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. 
I've rarely heard anyone accuse himself of this vice. <clears throat> and there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And he says, this is interesting. He says, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. He said, the vice I'm speaking of is pride or self-conceit. And then he makes this unbelievable statement. He says, it is the utmost evil. It leads to every other vice. It is the anti-God state of mind. Do you realize what Lewis is telling us? First, he's telling us that pride and arrogance is so deadly because it's so insidious. In other words, it slowly grows and develops in our lives and becomes well-established without our knowledge. And he goes on to say it is so competitive in nature. In other words, there's this desire that we be superior to everybody else. He says pride, for instance gets no pleasure out of just being wealthy. It's, I want to be wealthier than everybody else. If somebody comes into a room and you think, he, you think you're real good looking, it's not that you want to be the best looking guy in the world. You just want to be better looking than everybody else in the room. And this explains, he says, why we're always comparing ourselves with other people. You know, think about how, and I might point this out, secretly, we don't talk, but secretly in our hearts, how we compare ourselves, how we compare our accomplishments, how we compare our lifestyles. I mean, as, a, as a, a parent of young children, we even compare our kids with other people's kids. It's amazing how insidious this is in our lives. And as Lewis says, we're not even aware of it. And I might point out, this explains, if you ever wonder why this is, it explains why we're always trying and feel so compelled to impress other people. Even if we have to inflate and embellish our successes. But there's even kind of a darker side to this. It explains why we're always trying to hide our weaknesses, our failures, our fears, our addictions, our struggles. In essence, we have to hide from the world who we really are. Listen to what Blaise Pascal said, <clears throat> who many consider the most brilliant man to ever live. And he said this 350 years ago. How consistent we are today. It is the nature of self-esteem and of the human self to love only oneself and to consider oneself alone. But what can a man do? He wants to be great and finds that he is small. He wants to be happy and finds that he is unhappy. He wants to be perfect and finds that he is riddled with imperfections. He wants to be the object of men's affection and esteem and sees that his faults deserve only their dislike and contempt. The embarrassing position in which he finds himself produces in him the most unjust and criminal passion that can possibly be imagined. He conceives a mortal hatred of the truth which brings him down to earth and convinces him of his faults. He would like to be able to annihilate it and not being able to destroy it in himself, he destroys it in the minds of other people. That is to say, listen to this, he concentrates all his efforts on concealing his faults both from others and from himself 
and cannot stand being made to see them or they're being seen by other people. You know, have you ever thought about how much different your life would be if you didn't have to fear and worry about what other people think about you? If you never have to impress anybody? Have you ever thought about how different your life would be? You know, if what Pascal just, I just read to you, if what Pascal says is true, it makes me wonder, do we really know who we are? I mean, think about this. This is, this is a great point. If you can't be transparent with yourself and honest with yourself, and clearly you can't be transparent with others, then who are you? Dr. Tim Keller says, all of us, without God's help, live lives of illusion. We spend almost all of our lives trying to prove to other people and to ourselves that we are something other than what we really are. Let me give you a couple of examples of how deadly pride can be in our lives. Someone recently shared with me a, uh, one of the sermons of Rich Webster's, and uh, he brought out something that I had uh, long forgotten about. It was about a movie that I saw years ago as a kid. It was a very famous movie. It won seven Academy Awards, but I, 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 I would bet a large number you probably have never seen it because it was uh, produced in 1957, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Let me just read to you a little bit about it because it's a, a great point about the, how pride blinds us. The year is 1943, and through scorching heat, meager rations, and very little shelter, allied prisoners of war are forced to go, at gunpoint to hack through the jungle, building the Bangkok to Rangoon Railway, better known to the prisoners as the Death Railway. While the film vividly portrays the courage of these men who, in the face of unspeakable brutality, display the will and ingenuity to build a bridge in record time of men who have the pluck and audacity to whistle while they march, and the plot actually centers on the colonel himself, a man whose single-minded obsession with the bridge becomes a dangerous arrogance. In fact, he becomes so obsessed with completing the bridge that he forgets he's actually helping the enemy. And in one memorable, even surreal scene, the colonel, sweat-soaked, surrounded by other half-naked and starving men, proudly exclaims, We shall teach these barbarians a lesson, a lesson in Western methods and efficiency. We'll show them what the British Army is capable of doing. And if you've seen the movie and you know the story, what you, what's so interesting is that the bridge becomes a monument to the colonel's pride. And in the process, he helps the enemy and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even realize it. You see, pride does blind us. And what you see in the end of the movie is how arrogance causes a man to become lost to his men and to his country and most significantly to himself. When Jerry Leachman was here three years ago, he spoke about an extensive study that was done by a Harvard Business Review on why senior leaders 
in various business organizations why they fail in their jobs. And this happens all the time. But one of the things Jerry shared with me was a few details of the study that he didn't mention in his talk. One particularly, and I want to focus on that, but if you remember, he said, he mentioned four things that cause senior leaders, heads of, of, of large corporations, what causes them to fail. And this is common. In fact, I ask you to think about this in your own life because this is something we all struggle with. But listen to him. He says, first, they were authoritarian. They were controlling, demanding. They weren't listening to others. He said, two, they were autonomous. They had little accountability. They were aloof and isolated. Sexual impropriety was third. And then finally, he says, they became more, and it's interesting, the Harvard Business Review, they became more and more arrogant as time went by. And what Jerry shared with me, what, what, that, that what really points to the underlying reason for all this failure, and this is a quote from the study, they had this feeling and they acted as if they were superior to everybody else. And if you think about it, if you have this feeling of superiority to everybody else in the organization, then you'll treat people however you want to. You'll sleep with whoever you want to. You'll spend the organization's money however you want to. And basically, you'll do whatever you want to do. And you're generally blind to the fact that it's even happening. See, that's the nature of pride and arrogance. And what's so interesting is, listen, Martin Luther, who was probably one of the godliest men to live, he said at a certain point in his life, he, he cared for the poor. At one point, he, st he stopped and asked himself, why am I caring for the poor? And this is what he said, I quote, I realize I don't help the poor to help the poor. I do it so I can feel noble, so I can be recognized. I do it for me out of pride and self-centeredness. Have you, have you ever thought about why we do the good things that we do? It's enough to have to deal with the bad things we do. Have you ever thought, what is the motive behind the good things that I do? It's a scary thought. I can now see why the, the, the very noted British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said this. Men are trapped in the deep, dark dungeons of their egos. Now that's enough about pride. Let's talk about humility. I want to turn and, and look at this and, and, and lay out the paradox that Paul speaks of. The humble life. Life of humility. You know, humility, guys, is to truly understand your place in the universe and to understand God's place. It means to see yourself as God sees you. That you have infinite and inherent value but you're of no greater value than anybody else. You know, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> Moses says that arrogance is looking at your life, looking at your abilities, looking at your achievements, and thinking in your heart that my strength and my power and my ability has led to all the success in my life. But humility, guys, recognizes that all I am 
And all I have is a gift of God. And it's also a result of other people contributing to my life. And I think Drayton Neighbors in his book, The Case for Character, lays this out beautifully using the illustration of an athlete who wins the Heisman Trophy. He says this Heisman winner gets his name in the paper and his face on ESPN, but where did he get the DNA that created the strong body? And where did he get the coordination that helped him to win the prize? How many of the 100 trillion cells in his body did he create? We are told that for each of these cells there is a bank of instructions more detailed than the 32 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica put together. Does this tailback understand even one of these instructions? But I worked so hard, the tailback might say. I went to the weight room. I practiced harder than anybody else on the team. To him we could reply, (coughs) but who taught you to work that hard? Who built the weight room? Who bought the equipment? Who built the university, including the stadium you played in? Who cut the grass there and laid out the lines and the boundaries? Did you hire or pay your coaches? Did you recruit your teammates? Did you open up those holes in the line you ran through? If this tailback has humility, he will express nothing but overflowing gratitude when he wins the Heisman. To his parents, to his teachers, to his coaches, to all the players on his team, to everyone who helped him along the way. But most of all, time and time again, he will express gratitude to God. You see, guys, humble people are grateful people. And then Drayton goes on to say this. I love this. He says, humility is a form of wisdom. It is thinking clearly. It is simply being realistic. It is knowing who really deserves the credit and the glory for what we do. You know what I've found to be quite interesting is that most people don't really know what humility looks like. You know, historically, humility, particularly in the Bible, has been linked to the word meekness. Meekness. You know, in the Beatitudes, we hear Jesus say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Of course, I think one of the great problems with meekness is it rhymes with the word weakness. I mean, how often do you hear a father say, I want my son to grow up and be meek? We just don't understand the word humility. You see, the word meekness, by the way, comes from the word prous, which is a word for a powerful animal that knows how to restrain its power. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this book, Good to Great, Over the last five years, it's probably sold more copies in the world of business than any other book. And it's written by a guy by the name of Jim Collins. His first book was called Built to Last. But then he began to notice that there were certain companies out there, and nobody really knew why, that would just be kind of going along like this, and all of a sudden, you'd see this extraordinary performance. Not just for a year, but for years. And so he embarked with a large group or large team of researchers to study these companies. There were companies that basically, again, for whatever reason, took off and produced phenomenal results for 15 years or more. 
And they examined every public company in the world. And he identified 11 companies that he called that went from good, they were good companies, but then they went to great. And he had all, they, they researched for, for, uh, for months. And he said, when we started our research, he said, I gave the research team explicit instructions to downplay the role of top executives so they could avoid the simplistic credit to the leader or blame the leader thinking that's so common today. He said, so early in the project, I kept insisting, ignore the executives. But the research team kept pushing back. No, there's something consistently unusual about them. We can't ignore them. And, I re and I'd respond, but the comparison companies, in other words, the companies that were good, but not necessarily good to great, he said the comparison companies have great leaders also. So what's the difference? Back and forth the debate raged. Finally, as should always be the case, the data won. He said the good to great executives were all cut from the exact same cloth. It didn't matter whether the company was consumer or industrial, in crisis or steady state, offered services or products. It didn't matter when the transition took place, in other words, the transition from good to great, he said all the good to great companies had, this was the most important thing, they had what he called level five leadership at the time of the transition. Level five leadership. What is level five leadership? This is what they concluded. Level five leaders are a study in duality. They are modest and willful humble and fearless. He says a key trait of level five leaders ambition was first and foremost for the company and concern for its success rather than for one's own riches and personal renown. Level five leaders want to see the company even more successful in the next generation, comfortable with the idea that most people won't, won't even know that the roots of that success trace back to their efforts. As one level five leader said, I want to look out from my porch at one, of, at one of the great companies in the world someday and be able to say, I used to work there. In contrast, the comparison leaders were concerned more with their own reputation for personal greatness, and they often failed to set the company up for success in the next generation. After all, what better testament to your own personal greatness than that the place falls apart after you leave? He said, some had the biggest dog syndrome. Think back to Lewis's words. Some had the biggest dog syndrome. They didn't mind other dogs in the kennel as long as they remained the biggest one. Finally, the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger than life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They, they were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. And the bottom line is that the level five leader, listen to this, this is powerful. The level five leader builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and strong professional will. You know, Tim Keller makes a similar observation in humility, and that, that's why it's so important to understand what real humility is. 
He says, the humble are kind and gentle, but also brave and fearless. If you are humble, you cannot have one without the other. You see, we see humble people as being kind and gentle. We don't realize, though, that truly to be humble, you have to be brave and fearless as well. And guys, this is where the great paradox begins to make sense, particularly when you understand the humble life and the power it unleashes in your life. And you see great biblical examples of this. Bold, powerful, yet humble leaders. John the Baptist, for instance. The Apostle Paul. One of my favorites is Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And yet Moses went before the Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Pharaoh could have killed him at any point. And he said, Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go. I want you to give up your entire slave labor force, which is the key to your entire economic and military superiority. I want you to do it without payment, and I don't want you to mess around. I want you to do it right now. (coughs) Humble but fearless. And I really believe, guys, that this polarity of characteristics you find in the humble, the kind but fearless, the gentle but bold, is found most clearly in the life of Jesus. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, it describes Jesus as a lion and a lamb. And when you think about meek, he he refers to himself, I am meek and gentle in Matthew 11. But if you think about it, here you have the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, restrains his power and becomes a simple man. And you see how his humility, this humble, meek life, led to, to what we see today. In fact, I love, I've read this before, but I love this observation by Napoleon at the end of his life. And it's so appropriate to what we're talking about. Napoleon said this, I die before my time, and my body shall be given back to the earth and devoured by worms. But what an abysmal gulf between my miseries and the eternal kingdom of Christ. I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself and of Alexander and of Caesar should have vanished into thin air, and yet a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. You realize what he's saying? Here you have three men, Alexander the Great, Caesar, and Napoleon, seeking to control the world by power. And yet here's Jesus, a short, humble life that changed the world. Guys, the biblical understanding is that the humble, the meekest, are the strongest people in life. They don't make decisions by sticking their finger in the air to see what other people think. They have a fortitude or an inner strength to their lives. They know who they are. And their lives are not consumed by trying to please and impress others. Conversely, if you really think about it, the prideful who feel like that they're superior to others and have this need to impress others, in essence live with a a sense of inferiority to their lives and a sense of insecurity. They're very needy. In other words, 
They need to feed their egos. They need compliments. They need to be stroked. They need to be recognized. The proud, in essence, are really quite weak when you really look and analyze it. Now, before I share with you my conclusion to all of this, I want to share, with some, share something with you, guys, that really has rocked my life positively. And when I read this, I read this from a book, from a study that a psychologist did. It was like a light bulb went off in my brain. And I'm still thinking and contemplating what I read. And I think it's very pertinent to the paradox that I've asked you to consider this morning. Back in the 1930s, the 1940s, and even the 19, early 1950s, probably the most popular English novelist was a guy that many of us may not be familiar with, but his name was Lloyd C. Douglas. Five of the novels that he wrote were made into movies. The one that you may be familiar with, which was made back in 1953, was The Robe with uh, Richard Burton and uh, Gene Simmons. But he had another novel that he wrote in 1929 that was made into a movie twice. Once in the 1930s and once in the 1950s. It's called The Magnificent Obsession. And the novel is about a Dr. Wayne Hudson who finds himself on the edge of failure and deep depression. I think it's the following the death of his wife. And he's going to pick going to pick out a marker for her grave and he counters, encounters an eccentric sculptor by the name of Clive Randolph. And they begin to engage in a conversation and they, they get to be kind of friendly with one another and, and, and they begin to get into a deep conversation. And then Randolph imparts to him a secret which he claims, will he says, it'll transform your life. And he says it's a secret formula to find power in your life. And then he shares this. He says, you know, most men lead depleted lives, he says. They're weak, they're zestless, and they're generally pessimistic about life and the future. And he says the reason he contends is when they perform a good deed or some worthy achievement, they love to advertise it, they love to display it and make sure others know about it. He said, on the other hand, he says, men do everything they can to hide their failures, their fears, their weaknesses. He says, therefore, we spend our lives pretending, too insecure, too afraid of being found out. And then Randolph tells Dr. Hudson, he says, this is the remedy. He says, this is the secret formula to find power in your life. And he says, you have to reverse the strategy. He says, you have to seek to keep your great deeds and accomplishments a secret. And he said, you have to find people you can go to and be vulnerable with, where you can share your struggles, your fears, your failures, all of your secrets. He says, we're, we're, we're people that carry all these secrets around. Nobody knows about them. And in the movie and in the novel, Dr. Hudson begins to implement this in his life. He becomes a famous brain surgeon. Now, clearly Douglas, who, by the way, was a minister before he became a novelist, he clearly got this idea from Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus speaks of keeping your good deeds, keeping secret your good deeds. And this guy, Hobart Maurer, 
A very, very noteworthy psychologist was fascinated by the novel and the secret of Randolph. And he began to research Lloyd C. Douglas's life. And he believes, particularly after talking to Douglas's daughters, that Douglas, in fact, had applied this to his own life because up until the age of 50, he was just a, a common minister. He said, but something happened in his life that stirred his creativity and his passion. And as Maurer put it, he became the most widely read novelist in the English language during that period of time. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I find this to be a fascinating idea. And I truly think Douglas is on to something. You know, the prophet Isaiah, as I conclude this morning, the prophet Isaiah confronts us with a very important question. He says, why do you have such a high regard for man who is so frail and so finite? Why do we value his opinion of us so highly? I don't know if any of you ever read George Will's book on baseball called Men at Work. Listen to this. He says, baseball umpires are carved from granite and stuffed with microchips. They are professional dispensers of pure justice. Once when Babe Pinelli called Babe Ruth out on strikes, Ruth makes a populist argument. Ruth reasoned fallaciously from raw numbers to moral weight. He said to Pinelli, there are 40,000 people here who know that last one was a ball, you tomato head. Pinelli replied with the measured stateliness of John Marshall. Well, maybe so, he said, but mine is the only opinion that counts. (laughs) You know, guys, when it gets right down to it, whose opinion in this life really counts? Yeah, and particularly when you get to the end of your life, whose opinion will matter most to you? You know, Isaiah finds it quite incredible that mankind's opinion of us is more important to us than the holy, infinite God. And I would just say, guys, that humility comes powerfully into our lives when God becomes the audience that we perform for. Because when this happens, human opinion becomes less and less important to us. And that's why Blaise Pascal found it's so hard to believe that men would not consider a, a serious commitment to Jesus Christ because of their fear of the opinions of men. He said, I quote, They fear being thought weak. They dread being labeled religious or superstitious because they want to court favor with those worldly individuals they admire for their success, their fame, or rebellious outlook on life. And the question that I would ask you this morning, could that be true of your life? You see, guys, what's so important to realize, humility are the eyes through which we see God. The proud will never find Him. And what's happened, we have somehow come to believe that good people get into the kingdom of God and bad people don't. In reality, the scripture is clear. It's the humble who he receives. It's the proud and the self-righteous who are kept out. 
And this is what Jesus was trying to say in that famous short parable between the Pharisee and the tax gatherer in Luke 18 when he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying like this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was uneven willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know how many of you heard George Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was here two years ago. He spoke on this parable, and he said something very insightful. He said that the very religious moral Pharisee who believed in God, he felt very good about himself and his standing with God, he said his pride blinded him. Not realizing something was terribly, terribly wrong with him spiritually and that he was not justified before God and that he was not forgiven of his sin. And yet the humble tax gatherer, in his humility and his contriteness, was justified before God. He was forgiven of his sin and was spiritually healthy and vibrant. You know, I find, guys, in the, with the, in the work that I do and the men that I work with, I meet so many who are like this Pharisee and they don't even realize it. I lead a good life. I go to church. I give away money. I believe in Jesus. I believe that my good deeds will justify me in the sight of God. I had a man come see me recently, 51 years old, churchgoer, good father, good husband. If you examine this guy's life, you would say, this is a good guy. This is a good Christian man. And yet he confided me with me. I have no real relationship with God. Jesus is not a reality in my life. He's a concept I have in my brain. But it's like I've been faking it. And he struggled with this. And we met for a couple of weeks, and eventually, after several meetings, we talked about the content of this parable. And what he realized was that he had never humbled himself before God and surrendered his life to Christ. He believed in Him, but that was about it. And this is what's so difficult for men, I contend, and it's all over the issue of pride. Paul Turnier, a very famous and distinguished Christian psychiatrist from Switzerland, says that the decision that we face as men can be compared to a man hanging from a trapeze. He says the trapeze bar is the man's security. It's his pattern of existence. It's his lifestyle. 
And then God swung another trapeze into the man's view, and he faced a perplexing dilemma. Should he relinquish his current life? Should he reach for the new bar? And then the moment of truth came, and Turnier explained, when the, man, the, the moment of truth came when the man realized that to grab the new bar, he must release and let go of the old one. And so this morning I would ask you, are you willing to let go of your life? A life that for so many is a struggle because you have to pretend. You have to try to impress. You have to try to be somebody you're not. Are you willing to let go of that life and relinquish it to God? Because I truly believe He and only He can really deliver us from this unbelievable desire and addiction we have to win man's approval, to live for, for what other people think. He and only He can release us from that. But are we willing to let go of our lives? Are we willing to let go of our will to follow His? You know, can we let go? Can we trust Him with our lives? And most significantly, are we willing to truly humble ourselves as this tax gatherer and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinful man. Guys, this is what God requires from each one of us if we're going to find true forgiveness of our sin and if we're ever going to know Him personally. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that we can know you personally. And yet we realize that you require us to humble ourselves and to let go of the life that we hold on too tightly to. I pray that you would just continue to reveal yourself to us, that you'd give us wisdom to live this life as men. We realize life is such a struggle, and yet we realize also you desire for us to be healthy men, and that you desire to pour your strength into our lives, but that it only comes through humility. Strength truly is found in the humble life. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.